of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, episode 37. Where a season once punctuated by Google searches for beach body workouts is now marked by a spike in searches for pants with elastic waistbands. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. Hope you all had a great weekend. Great Easter for those of you of the Christian faith. And I hope the angel of death once again passed over the doorstep of all of my Jewish friends. Now, in June of... That's an Exodus reference, for those of you who don't know. Now, in June of last year, Donald Trump's tax bill was passed, which was panned by critics for adding $1 trillion to the deficit. Now, in a quintessential hold my beer moment, a stimulus bill was passed last month in response to the current pandemic for twice that amount with no real plan on how we're going to pay it down. In January, I had Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University to discuss what the national debt meant for the economy and the future of our nation. And she was gracious enough to accept my invitation on this week's episode to discuss the issue anew, albeit with some revised numbers. Now, as with every episode, there's some good news, some more good news, then some bad news, then some stuff we really need to look out for, some more bad news, and then some insights that can help us chart a path forward. Buckle up, amigo. I'll be back at the end with closing comments. When, when we first talked, uh, the 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 big concern at the time was that you know obviously we we're taking on a lot of debt uh the number of people who were drawing from social security as opposed to contributing in it, to it were were going up and that was going to have an impact on our ability to fund the government over the long term mm-hmm. and all of those concerns seem really quaint right now oh yeah um you know <laughs> like cuz we've you know, I mean, for for lack of a better phrasing, and and you're a better person to talk about this than I am, but you know, the economy is kind of in this state of suspended animation at this point in time, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you know, with the two trillion dollar stimulus that was written, and and obviously with no real kind of funding mechanism for it, I was kind of interested in I was interested in your take on everything, and I guess one question I have for you is, every economist out there seems pretty much in agreement that this stimulus is a really, really good idea. Is there any dissenting opinion amongst economists on that or no? Oh, I don't think so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's really not. Uh, it, this is really one of those situations where, you know, even when we were talking about it a few weeks ago, when the economy seemed strong and we were talking about concerns about the deficit, one mm-hmm. of the reasons was because we knew we were going to need space to run a deficit when the economy got into trouble again. And so Mm -hmm. that is the general view is that we should have this sort of counter cyclical fiscal response to the economy. So when the economy is going down, government spending should be going up. And so that's a pretty natural uh, behavior. Uh, But this one, of course, is much bigger, much more sudden, much more dramatic than anything we could have ever thought of. When we last spoke, you know, one of the dumber questions I asked you was related to my big fear that someday there is going to be a run on the dollar and cryptocurrency was going to replace it as the, mm-hmm. as the, uh, as you know, the, 
the the global uh, the global currency. And the interesting thing is, I I kept an eye during the the initial shock of this. I was keeping mm-hmm. an eye on a number of different assets in the market, mm-hmm. Bitcoin being one of them. That tanked. But the interesting thing is traditional stores of value like gold tanked as well. And it seemed like the only asset that was really holding its value through all this was the US dollar. Mm -hmm. Was that a surprise to you or no? It really wasn't. Um, You know, in in large part, that both suggests that people really view this as a temporary situation. And they're thinking, you know, longer term, the US economy is going to be strong. But also it really reflects something short term, which is I need cash to spend right now. Mm-hmm. And that's really a lot of what is going on and what we can see in asset markets. It wasn't necessarily when people were selling off their stocks, for example, it wasn't necessarily that people were not long term optimistic about the growth of the economy. It's just that they needed liquidity right now. And that's really what the issue is, is that what we're trying to figure out how to do is how to borrow from the future in order to support spending today when none of us can work in our normal ways right now and we're supposed to be as much as possible staying at home. And so that's really about liquidity. Is there a view as to whether the shock itself or whether the you know whether the the downturn will feel will strictly be from the fact that we've frozen the economy or whether there are sort of ancillary shocks to come? as a result of us having to do so. Well, unfortunately, I think we're already starting to see those ancillary shocks. And this is really where if we planned more for this sort of pandemic, and if we'd had fiscal policy in place already to both provide relief to individuals affected, as well as to support the economy in in the short to medium term when we're putting it on ice, we might find ourselves in a different position, but we're already hearing about people in advertising who are losing their jobs because there's no products to advertise right now because no one is buying anything because people feel bad to order anything other than essentials and ask people to put their lives at risk in order to deliver those packages. And so that sort of spillover, that's much more than just, you know, putting the economy on ice that's already impacting your know, second and third order jobs, you know, jobs that can be done from home, but there's no demand for their services right now. Yeah. And that's what looks like a more traditional recession than mm-hmm. just the first part of just asking people to stay home for a while. Like if we had just insured those people and said, you know, here, stay home, here's your financial resources. And as soon as you can go back to work, you'll go back to the same job you went to before and you don't have to worry about putting food on the table or worrying about paying your rent, we might have found ourselves in a different situation. But of course, at a potentially much higher cost to the budget. Uh, so trade-offs. Yeah. Do you feel like, is is that an issue of maybe us not having the fiscal breathing room to do so, or the political will, or or a mix of both? Um, I think it's more political will. Um, you know, there are other countries that don't have the fiscal breathing room. Uh, but, you know, by being able to pass a, a $2 trillion bill pretty quickly um, you know, and being able to sell those, uh, the, the debt for that pretty quickly and having the Fed available to buy the, the debt from the government uh, and the secondary markets, you know, we, we had a pretty good sense that we had the, the, space to do it. It was just a question of 
when did different groups realize that this is what we had to do? Uh, and, and a lot of you know, different groups making decisions at different points in time. So for example, when state and local leaders are telling people to stay home, but they are working with a balanced budget requirement, they don't have the ability to support people's income in the way that the federal government who can borrow money do have that ability. So, um, you know, with, with the, the local authorities saying stay home, but without anybody backstopping that with income, that's where you see these sorts of problems where people are, are asked to do something without any financial support to do it. People are effectively like cho- forced to choose between uh, their wallet or, or necessities and, and public health. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and, it, and I, if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like what we're not creating is an environment that incentivizes the right behavior, incentivizes behavior in favor of public health. Am I right? Well, I, there's a conflict here. And, and let me be extremely clear that there is no conflict yeah. between economists and public health advice. Uh, economists mm-hmm. have really come out very, very strongly in favor of you know, following the advice of the public health authorities and you know, addressing virus concerns first. We'll figure out the economy second. Uh, mm-hmm. But when we look at the way that the economy was already structured and the policies mm-hmm. that we have in place, so the unemployment insurance, for example, it was always designed to be less than what you were earning at a job in order to incentivize you to go look for another job. But now we're in a world where we're telling people don't go to work unless you are an essential worker. So people shouldn't be looking for work right now in the same way. And with that in mind, uh, we've had to suddenly change these long existing structures and policies in order to more align the economic and health incentives. Yeah, it's, you know, as I'm thinking of parallels here, I think about how during the Great Depression or during the run-up to the Great Depression, you know, the federal government took a principled stance not to bail out the banks. And that just created some enormous spillover effects there. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems like there has to be some sort of almost social insurance equivalent to the Federal Reserve for future instances like this. Mm -hmm. So if folks can't work or if it's in the public good for people not to work, that their income is effectively insured for a period of time until things are restored to normal. Yeah. You know, is that kind of what economists are are ultimately getting at or am I taking too far of a leap here? No, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, You know, I've definitely heard a lot of different versions of policies suggested. And of course, you know, we're going to study this episode for many, many years and come up with all sorts of potentially better policies that we could have done. And of course, the, the next time will look just enough different that any policy we've thought of won't quite work the same way. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, it's, it's always tricky with these sorts of really complex situations and all of the interactions of our economy, the global economy. And, you know, I keep wrestling with the idea that we do still want some people to go to work, right? There's all of these essential workers and I'm still trying to figure out what the right insurance scheme would look like that would support people and keep them at home, 
but also provide incentives for those that are essential to take that risk and go to work. It's it's mm. a complicated issue. Yeah, yeah. I guess I I see what you're saying there because because what you're saying is effectively again. Let's just say I'm an advertising executive, for example. So I'm going to get you know eighty percent of my pay to stay home or whatever the scheme is, and then there's a police officer who has to go out and put themselves in the middle of it all and sees no change in lifestyle as a result. Is that kind of the, the, the concern there? Right, exactly. And of course, you know, the, for the advertising executive, ideally they would be able to continue to do their work from home and should continue to do their work from home. And as long as there is still demand for their work and support for their work, they, you know, their employer could just pay them normally and it would work like the regular part of the economy. Um, and so how do you separate out the people who could do their work from home and should continue to work versus people who you know, have to be looking after children and doing you know, homeschooling all of a sudden? How do we identify who is who here mm. in a fair way that you know, has everybody feeling like they're all in this together, particularly if this is being paid for by tax dollars? Yes, because there is there. It's it's definitely not a situation that affects everyone equally. One of the things that was talked about before all this took place and seems to be coming into play now is, and we're kind of talking about this is the whole concept of of you know universal basic income, and the idea that every citizen's guaranteed a certain amount for you know basics, you know food, shelter, health, all that stuff. Are we kind of veering into that territory now, or is that a more mainstream? policy initiative now do you think as a result of this or is that still a little too a little further than maybe we'd go well i think it's related to what we are talking about now i wouldn't say it's the same thing you know some people are wanting to say like this is the reason we should have universal basic income and we should have it all the time and then if we find ourselves in this situation we'll all just be fine just more people will rely more heavily on ubi or or something like that uh but mm -hmm. i i think that that's it does have a certain political flavor to it. And I, I actually think it's more like thinking about insurance. So, okay. you know, a lot of us, I think, have thought like, oh, I wonder if I have some kind of insurance that could support my career in this scenario. I mean, we already call unemployment insurance insurance. And we think about you know, when you know, I, I was... I keep thinking about like the Aflac duck here when we're thinking about yeah. how you know if, if you get you know if you can't go to work you need money not just for the medical care potentially but also to support you and your family when you're not at work and that is you know thought of as insurance and there's a big problem here in that you know, normally when we think about an insurance pool there are a small number of people that need it at any particular time, but a lot of people pay into it and that's how it's financially viable. But when mm -hmm. the entire global economy is hit with something at the same time, how do we insure for something like that? I mean, any insurance company in this scenario that had offered insurance to protect from something like this, if a lot of people had that insurance, they would go broke right now. Yeah. Um, so this, but this is where a, large federal government can play a role because they are our way of being able to borrow from the future because we have the sense that the government is going to exist in perpetuity. And so they can you know, basically print money 
um, you know, either directly or indirectly, and use those as vouchers to be paid back in the future. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's really what we're thinking about right now. That just hasn't been particularly well designed or laid out in the policy proposals that we're seeing. Yeah. Well, and it gets, I think it gets back to what we talked about originally, which is there is this view of government debt, like household debt mm-hmm. and that more is automatically bad. And, and part of that too, is I think just kind of partisan spin in a way that's been, um, laid out over the years in terms of, you know, government bloat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one thing though, that, that I did find interesting and in kind of digging in, and I'm going to ask for your verification on this. What happens, for example, when the treasury releases, well, <laughs> you know, trillions and trillions of dollars in this case, that sort of sucks away a little demand from private debt markets, correct? Mm-hmm. And and so in this case, like there, there's, we're almost in the case of this particular stimulus, we're sort of doing a dual priming where there's, you know, obviously there's, there's treasuries that are, go- or there's government bonds that are going to be issued to, to pay for the stimulus, but then the feds also playing a role in making sure that there's a market for this private debt, correct? Right. And does that, is that another thing? Do you see that potentially creating, again, creating additional spillover effects when it comes to businesses being able to access credit over you know, the long term or no? Well, we're hopeful. No. And we're actually hopeful that the financial crisis and all of the studies that the Fed did after the financial crisis to ensure that they did the right policy if another financial crisis came along will be very helpful here. And that both they really have a good sense of what to do now to keep the financial markets from seizing up. I have to say, I'm very impressed with what the Fed's been able to do so far, because if you think about how much fear and flight to liquidity and and need for just cash to get through the week, it came in in the last few weeks, and that we haven't actually heard that much about credit being frozen. I, there's been there's there's been some challenges and of course there's you know, for a lot of businesses it is still hard to get a loan because it's a question of when are they going to be able to open again. Mm-hmm. But there the financial markets are actually working pretty well in you know, really really difficult times. And so I think that's great in the short run and then the the question is in the in the longer run what is all of this expanded work by the Fed going to mean? And are they going to give those you know, expanded markets up or are they going to continue to intervene in more markets further on down the line? I think that's really a, a question that is going to you know, face a lot of scrutiny in coming years once all of this has settled down. Yeah. Are you saying, do you see kind of like this risk of perpetual involvement of the Fed and credit markets for exactly, yeah. I mean, I, well, first off, just to kind of address something you said earlier, I I definitely am am kind of amazed by the fact the Fed, which seems on the whole to be a fairly like state institution, is just able to kind of spring into action whenever something like this occurs. Mm-hmm. And did you feel was their reaction to two thousand eight similar, or were they maybe a little slower? Oh, they were a lot slower. They're a lot slower. Okay. Yes. 
it, in a lot of ways, are we kind of benefiting from the lessons of that crisis, you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and then, of course, the concern is in any ways that this crisis in, ends up being different from that one, will they use the wrong tools, the wrong lessons? Because they're always looking for this to look like another financial crisis. Yeah. But if, so far, yeah. they're, they're doing a, a great job. And I think they're very aware of that. Like, that's something that various spokespeople on, on, on the part of the Fed have said that we're aware that we've studied the financial crisis so much that we want to make sure we're not mistaking this for something it's not. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, getting back to that risk of perpetual involvement in private credit markets, tell me if I'm, I'm getting the wrong idea here, but it sounds like the, the idea is, you know, right now their involvement makes sense. Mm -hmm. you know, the economy is effectively at a standstill. Everybody needs to kind of slow down or everybody needs to be at home right now. But after that, then we have to deal with the actual recession that comes from it. Mm -hmm. And the question there is, is the question for the Fed at that point is like, do we get out of the credit markets now because the economy is technically functioning, quote unquote, as it should? Or do we stay in? And if we stay in, for how long? Is that more or less like a, almost like a fiscal Afghanistan in a way? Exactly. Well, I think that's exactly the right analogy. I'm so glad that you said that because this is very much a, a, a wartime situation. And yet it, it definitely seems like you know, on both the virus front as well as the economic front, it's not going to be completely clear what winning looks like. Now, as always, I hope you're enjoying today's show. And also, as always, I have a favor to ask. While it's clear that our government did the right thing in passing our most recent stimulus bill and did it rather quickly, with the level of tribalism in Washington, it's only a matter of time until they don't do the right thing. And this podcast is designed to provide a place for people to learn and discuss issues free of the standard partisan labels. And I need your help. Now, right now, at this very moment, as I am saying these words, I'd like you to share this podcast. Like, right, right now. Not later, right now. Also, be sure to swing by YDHTY's YouTube channel, which you can find under You Don't Have to Yell, the big Gino spends every week painstakingly crafting videos for you all and ydhty.com for additional content and leave a comment to let me know what you're thinking and with that out of the way back to the show there's the potential to effectively reshape the role of the federal government in the economy in perpetuity and potentially do that incorrectly is that is that what i'm hearing well i, I think there's always that risk, but when any there, when in, there's any kind of big, dramatic situation like what we're seeing now, we're definitely mm -hmm. going to see different groups try to get their preferences, their particular pet policy, snuck in there, and they're going to want it to stay there. That was something I I was thinking as you know, kind of looking back at um, at the New Deal and at the response to the Great Depression and. You know that from a federal, from the standpoint of the federal government, that represented, the, I think, the largest expansion in American history. And if you look, you know, debt to GDP is always kind of hovered around the point it was at the New Deal. I think the lowest it ever was after World War II was somewhere around twenty-five to thirty percent, mm -hmm. and that was you know right around the New Deal level. 
given that the U.S. seemed to function fine with that level of involvement, is there room for that to turn up a couple of notches in a way? You know, and maybe for, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but is there a way to kind of maybe raise the ceiling on government involvement in a non-harmful way? Or do you feel like the best thing is just to go back to as close as we were pre-pandemic? I don't really honestly see a way for us to get back to pre-pandemic levels, either in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, government debt or involvement. We're going to see more policies in place because we've realized that if we're going to have these sorts of national and global policies and situations where we do need to possibly put the economy on ice for a while, we have to know that someone's there to warm it back up again. And I think this kind of you know circles back to maybe where we left off our last conversation, which is, you know, once we're out of this, there is still going to be the issue of uh, the obligations we have to retirees, for example, or just to, and, and to continue to fund the government for the future. Does this, do you see this creating an added stress there or an added peril? Or do you feel there's a way to kind of reshuffle the chairs so we're kind of prepped to deal with all of the things at once. Well, I, there, there's definitely a way to reshuffle the chairs, but it's a question of the political will to do that um, mm-hmm. because it's going to be costly to reshuffle the chairs. And you know, that if we think about kind of the, the ideal way to deal with the situation Given that we're we're in it now, and the ideal way would have been to have planned for it in the future and have people have paid premiums into some kind of national insurance policy, which we didn't do. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, in, in some sense, you can think about, well, paying taxes is paying into that national insurance policy. It's just we're kind of going to have to retroactively pay some of those yeah. uh, in, the f- in the future. So we are you know, probably need to expect that taxes are going to go up. And in some sense, ideally we would like the taxes to go up probably on those that came out of this situation winners. uh, Mm -hmm. Because if you think about this kind of virus shock, if you will, it wasn't targeted. It it wasn't anybody's fault. It wasn't like somebody did something wrong and that's what destroyed their career. Um, It, this really was something that came from the outside and is not, not anybody's responsibility. And so it's not like we could say like, oh, well, you were a bad person because you had the kind of job that was impacted by something that nobody had planned for. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not something mm-hmm. that we can, we can do. So um, you know, the, the idea that we all share the, the burden of this insurance kind of makes sense, but it's much easier to do that ex ante than ex post, right? It's much easier to go in and say, okay, well, I'll, we all have to pay into this insurance pool and then the people who happen to be affected by, you know, what you might think of as you know, paying into for, for natural disaster or something like that. If you happen to get hit by the hurricane, you get an insurance payout. Um, but we're going to do it somewhat in reverse where it's going to be like, okay, if you didn't get hit negatively in, in terms of you know, losing your, ability to earn income during this time period, 
then you're probably going to end up having to pay more in taxes because you didn't lose income during this period. Mm. But that can be a tricky policy to ex post come around to people and say, you have to pay more in taxes. No one likes that. No, 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 no. Not under any circumstances. No. And, and the one thing I, the one thing I would say, and this is, this has been in, you know, conversations I've had over the past few months is, you know, no fundamental change towards the common good ever happens without a disaster. Like there, I've, mm. I've, I've yet to see a situation. I think, I think institutions in general tend to like to stay the course mm-hmm. and especially big institutions like the federal government mm-hmm. or like the U S economy, for example, they like to kind of maintain the status quo at any, uh, at any expense. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, what our original conversation was about was about the fact that, you know, we want this very expensive federal government and we don't want to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And so they just take on more and more debt. Um, I, the thing I've been saying, and I don't want to sound insensitive saying this, but like, I hope that this is the disaster, mm. you know, in a lot of ways, I hope that this is it. Um, because if this allows us to change our behavior, then we can tackle, uh, uh we can tackle a lot of the issues of, you know, unequal access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, we can tackle, uh, we can, you know, we can, we can we can take the measures necessary to be more prepared for this because there will be another time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side is history doesn't always indicate that those disasters are always responded to in the right way. So, you know, there was a World War II, mm-hmm. you know, after after World War One. So, uh, in a lot of ways, I I, I hope that this is it. Um, and uh and i you know i don't know i'll pause there do you do you see any evidence that this is changing folks calculus at all or do you think it seems it it it, it seems to be uh maybe more of a speed bump yeah you, you know i mean yes and no i mean if we think about how quickly we did get bipartisan agreement on getting a, a what i would call a relief package mhm in, in terms of the you know, $2 trillion plus bill, um, you know, on, on that side, that, that seems good. It seems like people were aware, um, you know, politicians were aware that people were suffering and were wanting to get money to them. But of course, one of the ways that they made that bill happen was by, you know, everybody kind of got some money for the particular groups of people that they were focused on. Um, mm-hmm. And so in terms of coming to some broader understanding rather than still having strong partisan views that don't enable compromise on a lot of things. You know, I think we're, I think we're going to go back to having the same debate after, after this that we were having before, which is, should we have a much smaller government? And people will say, look how big the debt is now. We really have to shrink the government a lot. Mm-hmm. Versus others who are saying we just had this global pandemic that really can only be in, you know, addressed at you know, the highest of, of government levels. We need to have a larger government. Right? I, I, I could definitely see people strongly arguing on both sides of that and therefore leaving us still kind of stuck in you know, that, um, that mode of status quo because we can't come to agreement about which direction to change. 
it brings us back to where our last conversation, to one of the things we talked about in our last conversation, which is that in a lot of ways, the way out of this is only as clear as our ability to, to think clearly and to get along. Mm-hmm. And, and that is TBD, I would say, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not outrageously optimistic about it, Tara, but, uh, but you know, I, stranger things have happened as evidenced by the fact we're all trapped indoors right now. So, yeah. Well, and I, for myself, I still see two very different scenarios and I'm not, I'm not sure which one will, will win. Maybe it'll be a hybrid mm-hmm. of the two, but on, on the one hand, you know, I'm very worried about inequality. I'm, I'm very worried about how uh, there are people who are worried about you know, risking their health or risking the ability to feed their families versus people who are you know, complaining about going stir crazy at home, but are still mm-hmm. earning, earning a living. And, and I'm worried mm-hmm. about this being another one of those shocks that further exacerbates inequality, in particular in this country. You know, and people, you know, the haves and have nots of healthcare and, and that sort yep. of thing. I, I'm, I'm really worried about that. Um, and, and I think that that's something I'm more worried about in this country than, than other countries, although I'm even more worried about it when I look at our country as compared to other countries in the world that are being hit you know, similarly by the virus and don't have the, the, the possibility of having their government come in and give them a $2 trillion stim- stimulus or a relief plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of risks of, of, of continued inequality uh, around the world and potentially exacerbating that. Uh, on the other hand, if we look at all of the ingenious little ways that American entrepreneurs are are coming up with new ways to run their businesses from their homes, uh, I I always think about the yoga studios who have suddenly gone to Zoom and other platforms to teach yoga classes online and are, are doing a really great job with with that. And you know, these are the sorts of things that we would have thought would only be done in person before uh, and really shifting online very quickly and bookstores shifting online. And you know, we hear about all of these different businesses that are coming up with with new ideas. And I hope that this might be a time of creativity and innovation and perhaps just bringing the future forward a little bit and mm-hmm. coming up with cool new products that will be useful now, but also in the future. And that gives me hope. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the one, the one thing I've always seen with the United States specifically and and I don't know whether it's our culture or whether it's the fact that our weak social safety net effectively has a gun at our back constantly. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I will say is that our ability to be scrappy and our ability to be innovative in times of crisis is phenomenal. Uh, and when I look at places that again have a have a larger have a have a much wider social safety net, especially in Europe. Um, a lot of times what I see is in instances like this, they tend to look more towards, you know, the government or the centralized authority for, um, for assistance. And I don't, I mean, do you have any comment there? I don't know whether that's just the way we're structured or whether it's cultural or maybe a mix of both. Yeah. I, and this is one of those questions that has been 
deeply researched, but is actually really hard to get to a clear answer to because there is this sort of reinforcement of that, you know, because we believe we are scrappy, we believe we don't need as much of a social safety net, but then we have this gun at our back. So then are we more scrappy because we have, you know, which which comes first Mm -hmm. and would our culture still support entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity with a bigger safety net? And maybe would a bigger safety net actually encourage people to take more risks with their ideas? It's very hard to actually get a clear empirical answer on that, which is why we see so many different countries making different choices about Mm -hmm. how much of a social safety net they want. Yeah, it's a tr- it, it really is a tricky one. Um, I, I I do think that there is something to be said for the makeup of our population. Um, like I look at, you know, so my grandparents were uh, from Ireland, mm. right? And they left a relatively, what was a relatively poor country at the time and came here where they didn't really, where they had a few contacts, uh, but, and they did it, they they effectively left comfort for the idea that there was something better or that they could be sort of, there could be a better, you know, they could be a better version of themselves where they were. Uh, my grandmother specifically was in an arranged marriage and left mm-hmm. the country to get out of that. So, um, which is, you know, another story, but I'm, you know, in a lot of ways I've always felt like the, the consistent arrival of people with that set of expectations, you know, or a consistent arrival of people who are coming from, uh, coming from nothing and coming just with the concept that they could do something bigger in a lot of ways creates a lot of dynamism, a lot of dynamism in and of itself, and also creates maybe lower expectations when it comes to what to get out of the government. Um, whereas I think you look at like a, you know, I did a lot of work with companies in Scandinavia, for example, um, and their economies in a lot of ways, in some ways function better by virtue of the fact that if you don't like your job or if you want to leave your job to go found a company, you don't have to worry about putting your kid through school or you don't have to worry about healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and both seem to function fine. Um, I've just, I've always felt maybe we could use a little more Scandinavia, but not too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that, um, one thing that I find disconcerting in the data is that we've lost some of that dynamism here in the U S over the last 20 years or so. Uh, we've seen less turnover in business, which you might say, Oh, that's good. We've, our businesses are are not going under, but the problem is, is that we're also not seeing new ones come in. That's one of the, that dynamic churn that we saw in our economy uh, really was you know, strongly associated with uh, our productivity growth, our innovation, and all of that seems to have slowed down since about the year 2000. So it was going on even before the Great Recession. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that I'm hopeful for here is that we might find a way to kickstart that, that we might you know, basically back ourselves up against a wall so hard that we have to restart that creativity um and you know and it's a it's a sad way to have to do it to see you know a lot Mm -hmm. of businesses under stress the way that we're seeing them 
Are you saying the data indicates that there's less, that there are fewer businesses failing effectively? Is that what I'm hearing or is it something different? Right. So, I mean, we might want to focus on that there are um, fewer new businesses coming into being, but also Mm -hmm. fewer businesses failing. There's, There's just less turnover in the business world than what we were seeing, uh, but you know, yeah, we could focus on the the positive side of there are fewer new businesses coming into being. Hmm. And is there any indication as to why? Well, so that's no? really the big question, and it's it's pretty clearly documented that that's what's been going on, and there's definitely been a question of how strong that trend was before the great recession, you know, how much of it was that we were in a really terrible recession and slowly recovering out of it versus there was actually clearly a trend before that of this decline in business dynamism. And so with that, we really haven't been able to fully disentangle kind of these short run economic conditions because we did have, you know, the recession in 2001, and then again, the, the big one in uh, eight and nine. And yet it seems like it was just kind of more of a, a long-term trend. And so people talk about there being, you know, so there's, there's Larry Summers' secular, secular stagnation uh, view, or um, you know, there were researchers like Tyler Cowen who would say that, um, you know, it's it's just harder to come up with good new ideas these days, mm-hmm. and so you know, we don't have like a clear reason why. I mean, and obviously, if we had a clear reason why, we'd probably try to do something about it. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it was it that was kind of the theme of macroeconomic discussions, you know, back up till a couple months ago. Was okay. The economy is this as good as it gets? Can we not? become more innovative, more productive, and see faster growth rates. I think you and I maybe even talked about that last time as one potential solution to the U.S. government debt is if we could become more productive and yeah. you know, innovate more, we could grow our income faster and then pay off the debt pretty easily. Um, and now it seems like we're really, we're really going to have to come up with those ways to be more innovative, to you know, pay back some of and, and regain what we're losing during this period of, of putting our economy on hold. Yeah. Well, and and now I I think I kind of get what you're seeing too, about the peril of the fed getting too involved, because obviously if there are businesses that should fail, that are just kind of on life support, thanks to fed involvement, then that only hurts the cause of productivity. Am I I right there? Yes. And this is something that I'm, I'm worried about in a way that, so not all economists are talking like this, uh, and, and I can definitely see it both ways, but, you know, there's this view that what we want to do is, you know, particularly if the, the, the strong part of the pandemic risk is going to be relatively short lived, that maybe what mm. we want to do is completely put the economy on pause and then restart exactly the same economy again in a couple of months. And mm-hmm. if it's only a couple of months, I, I can understand that view. But if we start to talk about longer, we start to just freeze the economy for, let's say, six months, then mm-hmm. all of those businesses that were going to fail anyway in those six months, and therefore all of the new better things, hopefully, that people might move on to 
from there, that won't happen. And I think that that, you know, would be too bad. Uh, you know, I obviously I don't I I don't want anybody. You know, I think very much about the the workers of those companies being impacted. Mm-hmm. But that is that is part of our business world. Is we we have good ideas, we go out, we take risks. Sometimes they fail, and we move on to other ideas. And if we can't do that, then we won't have that productivity growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, and I think now it just seems like, do we? <laughs> we need to accept to an extent that we're not going to be like the Hoover administration and the run up to the great depression and kind of take this principled stance that, you know, businesses that fail should fail or whatever, or just kind of let them fail. There has to be kind of a balance there. Right. Um, one question I want to get back to you. So the whole idea of secular stagnation, what is that exactly? Well, so the, the idea, and, and there's, there's a lot of you know, technical debate about this, but, Broadly, the idea is that we have managed to, through poor economic policies, Mm -hmm. put our economy in a place where we don't have a lot of innovation, we don't have a lot of productivity, and we're kind of stuck here Mm -hmm. and stagnating. And it's secular in the sense of long-term trend, kind of secular trend stagnation. By nature, I'm an optimistic person, and that isn't wavering that much, even in these difficult times. I am very concerned about the short run and what's Mm -hmm. happening to people who don't know when they're going to be able to next buy food or pay rent, or they're having to make these sorts of choices between putting themselves and their families at risk by going out and doing potentially more more risky work and putting putting themselves at greater exposure to the virus versus being able to um, not not feed themselves and their families. So I'm really worried about that. Um, And and so and I don't want to in any way sugarcoat any any of that. Things are, are bad for a lot of people right now. And unfortunately, looking like it's going to get worse before it gets better. But there's also this idea that we could learn some things from this and that we don't have to be like this forever. There can be Mm. something on the other side that could look not just exactly like what the economy looked like before, but different in good ways. From my conversation with Tara, it seems we need to be ready to deal with something like this again and have the tools necessary to keep the economy moving while we all sit indoors waiting for things to blow over. But we also need a strategy for not doing this at the expense of the dynamism in our country to avoid the fiscal Afghanistan scenario Tara and I talked about. And the big issue in all this is that all these things will cost money and we can't always depend on the ability to take on more debt. So with that we're back to taxes the original intent of this month how novel now next week i have joanne weiner from george washington university to discuss our current tax structure the real relationship between taxes and growth 
and we managed to squeeze about a billion baseball metaphors in there. So just for funsies. So hope you'll join me. As always, music courtesy of Krellertack. YDHTY is produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney, Dungeon Master to my heart. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.